Hello, Adam, and welcome to the podcast Perspective of the Mind. I'm so glad that I'm going to co-create today with you. Thank you for having me. I'm quite excited as well. <laughs> so for those that are meeting you for the first time, you're a life coach, you're a change, change expert, right? Certified business and marketing coach, workshop facilitator, author. And today, today, Adam, I would like to put our attention, especially on your skills and your knowledge that I hope you'll share with us as a marketing and business coach and change expert. So you have been uh, building your business as a coach successfully for I think nine or 10 years now without so much online presence and without so much like uh, social media presence. Right? And keeping in mind that so many brands depend on that, that's impressive. And we will dive deep into that. But before that, I want to start with this general question. What do you think about social media? And social media, so generally speaking, social media as a, a, a business facilitator. What is your mm. opinion? Well, I think in, uh, the general thing, I think it's a beautiful invention because it's connected us. I think part of what I get to do wouldn't be possible um, without the invention of the internet and social media. I think sometimes when we talk about social media, it deserves to be defined uh, to kind of like, what are we actually talking about? I think there are aspects of social media that it can be challenging without any without the instructions without the balance without the know-how of how do i deal with this where it doesn't consume me how do i deal with this where it doesn't affect my well-being my psychological uh, stability for example and i think that is still somewhat of a social experiment from my perspective i still wish i st think we're still going through that as a, as a bit of an experiment it was unleashed and we're kind of figuring that out as, as we go along. So I, I think it's got two sides. I think it's a brilliant tool. I think it's wonderful how we can get con connected. I think we've seen movements and we've seen a lot of good happen thanks to social media, messages being spread around the world. That is a beautiful thing. And at the same time, it is a bit of a tool that I still think we can learn more about how to use in a responsible, uh, healthy, balanced way you go what are we missing what we're missing mm -hmm. before we go to the business side yeah exactly well i love tech i really do like i i don't i'm not the biggest fan of the social media side of things and at the same time i love tech i really i feel very very positive okay. or optimistic about the technology technological advancements I can't predict what social media will look like in five years or 10 years, so I, I don't know that. However, what I think is missing though, I think we have conflict of interest. So we've got social media that is being developed by companies that are for profit and, and we are being its product or its users. And I think there might be some conflicts there because we are not always aware of uh, behind the scenes, how we are being the product. So what are we missing? Are we missing consent? Are we missing information, training, education? Perhaps, I think in general, as a society, I think Europe is doing some, some things to balance out 
the dangers with unregulated business practices in in the tech industry. I think Europe is doing a you know at least they're doing more than other areas of, of of the world and that i actually welcome i welcome the dialogue around that can you can you now go with the business side as a business yeah leader? yeah i so i think i think that almost like if you're talking about a website where you're talking about social media you're talking about and, and with social media it can, it can be really any of the bigger platforms i think all of that does have a place and what i mean by that is like to me a lot of times that works as a business card it can be a shopping window it, it gets to be a digital office for a lot of people mm -hmm. the the challenge or potentially the concern i have with social media in business is that it becomes a the holy grail and i'll come back to that and b once it starts transforming into a you taking on the role of being a content creator and i can expand on that as well the holy grail to me is when we think and and this is where i look at this it's like we don't know how we ever did business before social media and and i'm old enough to remember what that looked like and so i know there are ways to grow businesses and deliver our services without social media and when we make social media the holy grail of like we need to have it and we should always be you know uh, a branding and, and and marketing and building a personal brand or whatever it might be uh, i think we are putting a lot of trust or a lot of just call it trust in mm -hmm. social media being the main and potentially only vehicle for an online business that's the holy grail the challenges i think with becoming a content creator and I think you and I have had this conversation when we connected in, in a different call. I think if you're a service entrepreneur, and this could possibly also connect to anyone really, but mm -hmm. I'll leave that up to them. I think we have one main thing, and it is our craft. That is our service, the thing we deliver, the thing we're really good at. I think a lot of times, like the, the position I'm taking on that is that we can actually be so good that people will take notice. And with, in order to become that good, in order to master your profession, master your craft, you often need to spend time, significant time doing so. For example, I think creating anything of significance often takes time and depth. Creating something that makes a difference with someone or, or generates value for someone, I think it requires depth. Because if it's shallow, if it's very, very, very surface level uh, stuff, most of that can be found doing a Google search or YouTube or going on whatever, whatever. So when we're trying to make a difference, trying to master our craft, often what's required is depth. I find the use of social media, I find the content creator uh, title or job description I find that taking away from that depth going into my craft. That's the challenge with the business side. And at the same time, it works wonders as a shopping window, business card, and ways of connecting beyond the borders. Because that's what I do, right? I, I use WhatsApp 
Is it social media? Yeah, probably. However, for me, it's a messaging service and it's allowed me to connect with people in Asia, in North America and everywhere in between. So I'm grateful for that. So is that the reason you decided to limit your presence on social media? Because you have to spend a lot a lot of time to learn that. Is that the only reason or there is also something else? <laughs> okay, yeah, that, that, that's good. Well, <laughs> be honest. So, yeah, exactly. I, I think you're like, what's the, what's the level? <laughs> what's the degree of honesty here? No, I'll, 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 I'll share. So first of all, when it comes to business, yes, I did notice. So the first year I started out running my own business, and you, you said in the introduction, I've now been doing this for nine plus years. Mm -hmm. And when I first started, I spent about 90% of my time marketing, 90% trying to get my message, my brand out. And I spent only 10%, maybe potentially 20% delivering my service. And because my business is a passion business, I love what I'm doing and I would probably do it even if I wasn't getting paid. I felt quite deprived and, and drained from only doing marketing, but not getting enough practice or, or, or um, implementation of my craft, honing my craft. So I got to a point where I just like, I looked at that pyramid where it's like 10%, almost like an iceberg. It's 10% above surface and then there's the 90% below surface. I was like, this is no fun. What would it look like if I turned that upside down? What if I did 90% coaching, delivering my services and only 10% marketing? What would that look like? I didn't have the answer. Uh, I just knew that as a coach, I get to ask these big questions and I can live into the answers. So I sought out mentors and coaches and teachers that could help me develop this. And over the years I did. That's why I dropped social media mm -hmm. on the business side because I just felt it just took me away from what I truly loved doing. It's easy to get caught like scrolling and, and getting engaged. On the personal side, I have a background and I don't think I don't think you know this about me, but I have a background as, as a trained actor and dancer. So I have no problems with being in front of the camera, being in front of people. That is easy for me. And so when I started kind of using social media, that was always easy going live and doing stuff like that. Mm -hmm. However, I, I, as a, hmm, here's where it probably got a bit mixed. As I became a better and better coach, I, I kind of felt like less need to put myself out there and claim I had the answers or something like that, which was the typical messaging that I did on social media. Like, hey, listen to me, I'm going to go live and I'm going to share the best five tips to do X and Y and Z or whatever. I just didn't feel comfortable doing that. I And, and so yeah, I, I, yeah, and so I kind of stopped. I, I didn't do that. I, I, I rolled that back. Also, I've never really been good at taking pictures. So anything I put out on Instagram just didn't look very nice. So I just figured I'm not going to do it. I'm, I'm fine. I'm, I'm happy as it is. So, mm -hmm. yeah. And let's, let's now go back to the 90% that you have mentioned that mm -hmm. you have been doing marketing. Do you say that those 90% didn't really bring you enough leads that you were really looking for? Right. So here's the thing. I think my time was spent, 90% of my time was spent on marketing activities. And because I'm so bad at it, I just didn't get, I mean, I didn't get the leads. I didn't get the conversion. I didn't get the clients. Is it because you're really bad? Do you think that that's the 
that's the yes i think in terms of my knowledge around marketing activities mm -hmm. that was the main reason i think would i have studied it would i have kept at it i could have become better which could have then yielded better results i believe that but keep in mind then that's where i was starting to see a, a pattern if i'm needing to learn marketing if i'm needing to learn this as a skill what what where am i taking that time from well in my world that was being taken away from my practice from my craft the thing i'm here to do yeah, and yeah. that's why I, i didn't want to compete with that mm -hmm. yeah, and you, yeah and yeah, you also you said that the better you became in what you was doing as a coach the less you felt the need to go out there can you elaborate a little bit more on that yeah yeah it's good of you to pick pick up on that well first of all i think as a as a coach uh, we do less talking and more asking questions so we are looking for i think uh the the self agency within the individual we're talking to so i think there's a difference between telling people and kind of um coaching people so the telling is i think more towards teaching and consulting which has its place coaching is less that i think it's more about inviting people to ask bigger questions and then find their way inside of that perhaps it's just me which then kind of defeats the purpose There's another thing I think is important to to keep in mind if if we're in the in the industry of service entrepreneurship especially therapists psychologists coaches healers and helpers uh, if our clients put us on a pedestal meaning they're looking up at us uh they think we're that great or that good are they're 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 role models even that can have detrimental effects to the relationship because now when they're supposed to be vulnerable and honest and open they might not be that way because they don't want to fail uh before me because I'm their role model I'm their you know whatever whatever so when I'm put on a pedestal that way what if our results are negatively impacted so what I'm doing then is trying to level uh the playing field like this human to human where it's like we're peers i i have a skill that i'm using that's why we're making progress it's not because i'm better than you and i'm going to tell you exactly how to do it that's what i understood that when okay i'm going to say something you can use because this is an interview which could be a click you know clickbait thing but i think in our industry coaching uh helping healing fans can be cancerous to our authenticity. Okay. So when we are looking for followers or fans, I'm not sure we can all also at the same time maintain authenticity. And again this connects with the 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 pedestal thing. Like mm -hmm. if we have followers, can we still make sure that authenticity is part of uh how we show up? Of course we can. Everything can be done with balance. Maybe it's just me. I was having trouble with that. I just found it to be a challenge. Uh should I grow my following or should I be honest? Mm -hmm. Should I be authentic, vulnerable, open and share or should I be concerned about clicks and likes and this yeah. and that? Do you see what I'm saying? 
I am hearing you so well. You cannot okay. imagine how well I'm hearing. <laughs> yeah. And I love the fact that you you said that you don't want to put people in your model of world. And I'm often in front of that case when I when I when I post. I wonder how can I deliver my message so that I, I don't impose my world of view in front of people. And that's so difficult, Adam. It's almost impossible. I understand yeah. what you're saying. I yeah. I understand. I, I don't believe in the general answers to everybody because we are so different. Correct. And it all brings you know a lot of confusion about that social media. So I'm I'm so much hearing you. And also as professionals, we have I think at least that's my perception, and I, I think it's yours as well. We have to be true to ourselves, to our values, what we would like our message to look like. And not true to, to the algorithms, right? And then becomes challenging. Correct. Yeah. I am diagnosing here, which is not necessarily my, my responsibility or my uh, job. However, I do think, and this goes back to where I started with saying how social media can be a challenge. I think there are, physio physiologically, I think there are, the way that the system is set up, it is to give us the dopamines and endorphins uh, with the likes and the approvals and the, you know, that gamification of sorts. So it feels really good. And, you know, the scrolling, there's the excitement and surprise of something new, um, the FOMO fear of missing out, all of that, I think is very much rooted in psychology. And, and it connects with the physiology uh, because we, we have these cues. And that's working against us. I actually, that's what I think it's working against us. We're up against that machine. But to us, it's just like, oh, it's a great place to connect. It's, it's so wonderful. Because of all of these things, I think a lot of people knowingly and unknowingly can get caught up in virtue signaling, uh, for example. They, they show themselves to only show their best sides. Um, because that gives likes and approvals and this and that, and they get to be that person uh, in, in a very managed, moderated version. I've, got, I've got, gotten to know people traveling. It's a funny thing. I've, I've met influencers. I've met really, really inspiring people. And, and only having seen them on, online, then meeting them in, in real life, I, I can't recognize them. There's a big discrepancy between who they are online and who they are offline. I'm not judging, I'm just observing that. And, and so I think there might be an ease of creating these personas, which are feeding, I think, a need, a need to uh, be seen, be validated, loved, uh, appreciated, which are very human, basic needs we all have. And I think we've lowered the friction of that. And at the same time, we've also made us very vulnerable because it's so such an instant thing that happens. It's the likes or the dislikes. It's the comments. It's the it's the trolling and all of that. So I think the ego, the ego is definitely present because it it serves a need of of being loved and belonging, which is su such a basic thing. And sometimes it's camouflaged as helping, and other times it's genuine. I I genuinely believe I'm helping. I'm just misinformed in the ways I'm doing it. Is that is that helpful? 
yes. for me to expand. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks for sharing your point of view. Yeah. And now let's let's move to the other side. So, okay, you don't have so much online presence, social media presence, and you have decided that you walk on this path. How do you fa- find your clients? What is your main marketing strategy then? I think a lot of people would love to hear that. Yeah, yeah of course. It, it sounds like a, a trade secret. That would be fantastic. How do you find <laughs> your clients if you're not online? Well, I'll tell you where they are, but you can't tell anybody. We've talked about this, you and I. Uh, to me, I've, I've got a bit of a lens on. And, and the lens is I don't look for clients. I look for ways to be helpful. And so uh, I often talk about, instead of calling it marketing, and I do this uh, for anybody who can't see it, I'm creating a circle with my fingers here. I call it exposure rather than marketing. Marketing, I think, is an activity you do to get people to talk about you or or, or to convey uh, a message or an impression. Mm -hmm. I don't do that a lot for the the reasons we mentioned before. I don't think I want to, I don't want people to fit into my worldview. I don't want to be a, kind of spreading these general ideas. I create points of exposure. For example, you and I having this conversation, if and when it gets published, that's a point of exposure. Yes, it could be considered a marketing strategy, of course. And there are other activities similar to this where it's just exposure. It is just me either getting in front of people or connecting with people. And those two things are my main concern. Am I getting in front of people that could potentially, you know, lead somewhere? Am I connecting with people that could potentially lead somewhere? And and that's what I do. So I think I'm doing a bit more, from my perspective, a bit more active. I'm being active in connecting and engaging. Yeah. Versus passively wanting people to DM me, reach out to me that kind of thing. Although, because I'm not using social media that way, I'm not going to show up in your DMs going like, hey, um, do you need this thing? I've got this thing. I'm putting together a web- webinar. I'm not going to berate you. I'm not going to ha- harass you that way. That's not the kind of outreach I'm talking about. Because, as I mentioned before, I've got a lens on looking for ways to be helpful. So how so, are you doing that then? Yeah, exactly. Let's make it uh, concrete. Um, well, not too long ago, I was, uh, living in Tenerife and I attended a networking event and it was a networking event. I can't remember what the topic was. I think at that time it was just about uh, bringing together people who were, uh, health conscious, uh, and, and wellness conscious people. Mm -hmm. And, and so I went, me and my partner, and it, it happened to be at our favorite restaurant. So that was brilliant because uh, we got to eat as well and um, and because it had that people who has the similar interests as me it was an easy thing to do uh, this is what I call connecting inside your comfort zone uh, because it's an easy thing for me I actually think when it comes to connecting with people building relationships we should be comfortable uh, because it's really hard to do that when we're uncomfortable anyway During that networking thing, it wasn't to create clients or anything. However, because we're connecting, because we're talking and we've got some common interests, I exchange a lot of thoughts and ideas and 
experiences um, with people. And I walked away with having connected with at least two people that were quite interested in potentially getting on a call with me. Now, that's not what I intended to happen. It presented itself because I, I saw where I could be helpful. It required me exposing myself, connecting with people where, where, yeah, well, there's potentially a group of people I could work with. Is that answering your question somewhat? Yeah, but I'm wondering something here. People that are watching us right now, they don't know, but I know that you're traveling a lot. So it's very applicable in this way, right? You can make it because you're meeting so many new people. But how about the people uh, who have like a permanent place of living? Do you think that it's uh, it's possible for them as well? Let's say, let's imagine that you're living just in Sweden. You're from Sweden, only there. Do you think that you can make it in the same way? Well, I believe so. And I think it's, it's really for all, you know, each and every one for themselves kind of figure that out and yes i do i do believe that is possible um for example again if we go back to the idea of what's inside of your comfort zone what what's what feels natural and and comfortable to, for you to connect with people so that you know we talked about fitting people into our models one of the things for example some people don't like uh being face to face with people they they feel awkward or uncomfortable, yeah. mm -hmm. then obviously I, I wouldn't suggest that they go out and network because it can be too draining. They can be introverts or whatever it might be. So then that might not be the thing. That's why I think exploring what feels natural or comfortable for me in the ways I connect with people. So mm -hmm. if you like the online world, you could use that. You could use the, the difference being I'm not suggesting you become a content creator or entertainer or educator. I'm looking for exposure and or connection, looking for ways to be helpful, adding value. And that can be done in your local village or city. That can be done online in any of the communities or platforms that I believe exists out there. Yeah, makes sense. <laughs> I think connecting is it. I think connecting is is important to 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 understand. And do you there think are that, some processes. Yeah. Do you think that it Please can go. be applied for all of all sorts of businesses and not only for uh, coaching and in the helping area? I actually don't know. It, it is one of the things I am experimenting with right now. I, in the past, would have you asked me two years ago? I would have said yes, easily. I'm not so sure anymore. And it's not that I've come across proof that is showing things differently. It's just, I actually don't know. I, I don't know. One thing I am seeing is if you're selling a product, either a physical product or, well, yeah, that's the thing. I, I really think when it could potentially work, I can't guarantee it. I think it works better when it's a service entrepreneurship, a service experience. I think it's even better when it's it's a relationship-based profession, which I think, you know, healing, helping, um, consulting, that kind of industry uh, is. I think that is, is, is help, more helpful. Because I think, again, 
my industry of coaching, consulting, uh, healing, etc., is, I think, first of all, a rela relationship-based profession. So without the relationship, I find it really hard to create the outcome. I think it's yeah. almost impossible. Like uh, the relationship with the client here, it's like so important. Right. And I even read somewhere, I don't remember in which in which book it was, but it was saying that something like 60 or 70%, even more from the healing itself is the relationship basically with the person, <laughs> which was impressive right. to me. Yeah. Such a, Again, such a I, I love that you're saying that. I, I, I totally agree with that, which is why I think that, again, if that is accurate, it means that our focus, our attention needs to be on the relationship first. And so, again, uh, connecting, uh, listening, asking questions. I think, for example, uh, and, and this could be helpful for anyone listening, when and if and how we're in conversations with people, and you can define conversations in many different ways, but if we're texting, emailing, talking, whatever it might be, I think one of the most important things we can do as helpers, healers, etc., is to have people relax. Because if they're talking to us and they feel tense and they feel awkward or they feel whatever else there might be that is negative, I don't think we're getting to that period, that, that situation where you mentioned how the, the relationship can be the healing factor. We need to be able to relax people somewhat. And that is interesting to me because now we're starting to talk, talk about what helps with that. How do we actually get people to relax. And I think that comes down to intention, communication, slowing things down, being authentic, etc., etc. And none of that is marketing to me. Yeah. Again, if you put me on a pedestal, chances are you'll be tense when you talk to me. Oh God, it's such an honor to meet you. Oh, I followed you for years. I bought all your books and I went, no, no, I don't, I don't want that because I'm now afraid that you're tense rather than relaxed. I'm now afraid you're, you're, you're not going to be open to being vulnerable or honest here. I want, I want the human-to-human -human connection first. I was thinking about the pedestal that you're talking about. Do you put somebody on pedestal yourself? Yes, I think yes? so. However... Is it like a, a famous person or somebody from your family circle? Or can, yeah. can I ask? Yeah, yeah, of course. I mean, I, I've got mentors. I've got mentors uh, who I would probably look up to. And at the same time, though, I think there's a way to humanize uh, people that we look up to. For example, and this is something that my mentor taught me. If, And you can use this on social media as well. So this is for anyone who's struggling with this. If you sometimes find yourself seeing a role model or a competitor or whatever it might be going like, oh, they did that. They do that so much better. Oh, now, because she did that, I can't do that. When we're starting to feel discouraged because we saw someone else do it, etc., etc., one way to humanize that, which is so much more, well, it's probably more true than, than what you're making things uh, out to be, because we have to remember on social media, at least from my perspective, we are comparing what people look like on the outside with what we feel like on the inside. And those two things are very different because we have no idea of what's actually going on on the inside. 
but to us that that's that's how we're comparing it so humanize someone by saying he launched a successful business and what people don't know is dot 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 and start listing all the things like and what people don't know is she was scared the whole time and what people don't know is she sacrificed her health her well-being her marriage those things it doesn't matter if it's true or not just understanding there's a there's a side to what you're seeing that you're not seeing and she's human as well she struggles with your challenges and other challenges and that humanizes them so i my mentors i i admire them and i know they are scared they fail they they go to the toilet as well just like like me like they they are normal human beings as far as i know and so I do put them on a pedestal and at the same time, I think I neutralize the relationship and, and look at them as human to human. And let's now go back to the, to the question about, <laughs> yeah, the conversation developed in so different ways, which is wonderful. But uh, going back to, uh, to the question, is it possible your model of working to be applied to all kinds of business businesses and so you have said that for services, yes, you're pretty com comfortable with saying that, yes, it works, but you're not so sure about when it comes to selling products, right? Which makes sense, right? Because if we want to sell more products, we have to connect with outside just of our area, right? Because, because why? Because of the business model. Uh, in, in business development, I look at something that another mentor might taught me, uh, swim lanes. What are your swim lanes? So, for example, if your business model is a model uh, that works with 50 to 100 people per year, is it a model that works with 1,000 people per year? Or is it a model that works with 3,000, 8,000, 10,000 people a year? And product sales often is on the higher end. Uh, depending on what kind of product you have. Um, so if if you if you're selling products, most likely you're talking to uh, you know talking about three thousand clients or eight thousand customers or ten thousand or millions of customers versus in service industry, depending on how it's set up, you might be working with a hundred people a year or a thousand people over year uh, but they year. come off more often to you is that the reason? Uh, Yes and no. I think it's about uh, your scalability. It, so if it, it might be hard to work with 10,000 uh, people if you're a service entrepreneur. Now, that's not exactly true. I mean, Tony Robbins does it. it, it, it it's a matter of intimacy, I think. And, and at the same time, though, the thing is, if you're a, a person like Tony Robbins, he is working on the 10,000 or more people a year, which means he's got way more marketing uh, strategies in place because he needs to introduce new people into the business quite a lot. So I think it's about figuring out what's your swim lane. Like, are you working with like a huge amount of people, a very exclusive amount of people, or somewhere in between? And it could be that if you're working like Tony Robbins, my model, my, my strategy won't work because you're actually required to go outside to reach more people. 
and and slowing things down, having a uh, um, high touch relationship is very very hard. Like in Tony Robbins' community, because I've worked with coaches of his, I've actually coached coaches of his. Um, they they do that. Like they have a brilliant setup. People will uh, stay in touch with people who come into their uh, orbit, right? It's just not Tony Robbins. It's 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 outsourced. There are other people doing and delivering some part of that human to human uh, experience, and and so again, if you get to that point. You know, it's just a different game to play, I think. Yeah. Yeah. That's why products can be harder. Because you're looking to at, at a larger group just, of people. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And Adam, the words, no more hustle, stop working so hard, no more willpower or discipline. That, those are your words. Mm -hmm. I want to know about it. So many people are preaching exactly the opposite. You have to work hard to achieve your goals. Mm. You have to hustle. You have to persevere. So what is your recipe? How do you make it possible without so much work and without hustle? And you even say without discipline, which for me was like, wow. Yeah. Yeah, it's, I'm glad that you're, catch kind of picking up on that uh it is definitely i think one of my life's work it is to develop this and it would probably require another two hours of a conversation to expand on that completely <laughs> however i will do my very best uh -huh. to explain that somewhat understandably so what you're talking about is often how i talk about how we can grow perform and succeed inside of our comfort zones which is often the opposite of what everybody else will tell you that you always have to leave your comfort zone in order to achieve success performance results growth whatever um i i don't think that is correct let's see how do i say this first of all so the thing is if you look at the definition of the comfort zone so the way that it was defined is it's the zone where we feel we have enough of everything. We feel safe. Uh, there's no risk. It's anxiety-free. Uh, it is uh, an even level of performance. Now, I'm, I'm cherry-picking different sources around this. Brene Brown had a, um, a different uh, take on that, where she said it's the zone where you're loved enough, you're fed enough, you're confident enough, like everything feels enough. To me... If that is the comfort zone, that sounds like a good place. Then why did we make it into a bad place? Why did we? Why are we hating so much on the comfort zone? If it's if it's if it's a neutral or risk-free, anxiety-free, even performance experience where everything feels enough. For example, we look at children. How we raise children. We know this to be true most of the time when, when we're raising children. For them to venture out, they often need to know the parent is there. They need to have a center of uh, uh, safety. Yeah, so, for example, you take the kid to the, uh, the playground for the first time and it's just new kids there. Well, they're going to they're gonna sit with uh, mom first. And then they're going to take a few steps into the playground, come back in just to make sure mom's there. They're going to walk in. They're going to keep doing that a couple of times until they trust 
Mom is there. She's not leaving. I can do this. It's safe. They're mm -hmm. working inside their comfort zones. Instead of going outside, they're expanding what is their comfort zone until the very thing they desire can fit inside of that zone. Like, until the playground actually fits inside what they consider comfortable, that's, that's how they kind of achieve the thing they set out to achieve. I think what you have described is yes, achieving that, but still going a little bit from the outside, uh, from outside of the comfort zone because the mom is not there the whole of the time. It's step by step. So I, maybe it depends how we are looking at the things. Through my perspective, my comfort zone in this case would be with my mom. So the, the way that I'm looking at this is you can work with curiosity. You can work with what feels uh, exciting. So if you're curious, which I think happens more inside of the comfort zone, because if you, according to my definition, you're stepping outside of your comfort zone, you feel uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. You feel anxious, potentially, or threatened. Uh, often there's a model that portrays there's the comfort zone, then there's the fear zone, then there's the growth zone or learning zone. So it, it tells us we have to transcend or kind of traverse the fear zone in order to get to the learning zone. And that's the, the, the issue I have with that, because we're asking people to always having to face fear in order to overcome. And I think for a lot of people who've experienced trauma or burnout or depression, that is a tough cookie to swallow or to sell. Um, yeah. You have to face your fears. I'm saying that if you work with curiosity, what feels comfortable, what feels exciting, that can also lead you in a direction where you have interest. And in coaching, we do that. We follow interest. We don't tell people what to do. We follow interest. Then it's almost like we're watering that interest, that plant, and it grows. And that is kind of what I think with a kid as well. It's not that the child needs to go to the playground. It is actually that it wants to go to the playground. It's just doing that very slowly. And so I think it's still the element of free choice, following desire or interest. They want that. And they want that from a place of feeling safe to begin with. And then they're kind of expanding their comfort zone. There's a difference when you're saying, if you want change, you have to go outside your comfort zone because that leaves this huge gap between where I am and where I need to go. And the, and the, and the gap in between is just scary, uncertain, and I don't know how to do it. Mm -hmm. and, and I know, and I'll be the first one to say, I, I often do when I, when I talk about this, I often say my message is a message of nuance because I don't think it's an either or thing. I really don't. Mm -hmm. What I am offering, That's though, is feeling. a conversation. Yeah, I am offering a conversation because I yeah. think yeah, what, what I triggered think. me was years ago. I was reading an article which said teenagers uh, should be more awkward and uncomfortable. And I, as I was reading that, it was saying, well, teenagers these days, they're just staying inside. They're, they're not venturing out. They should learn to be more awkward and more uncomfortable. And some of my work involves working with young people. And I can't in my mind see how telling them, yeah, yeah, you should just be more awkward. Yeah, yeah, you should just be more uncomfortable when they're medicated or they're scared, anxious, anxiety attacks, whatever it is. 
I don't see how that is the solution because you've probably heard this expression before. If a hammer is the only tool you have, then every problem will look like a nail. Mm -hmm. Right? Every problem, because the only tool you have is a hammer, every problem shows up, it has to be a nail because that's the only tool you have. I think that's the message of outside the comfort zone. It is a hammer. It is the only tool we have, so we keep hammering at it. But what if we need a scalpel? What if we need something different at times to different people? There is no room for that because, hey, growth lies outside your comfort zone. Everybody knows that. <laughs> yeah. I'm listening to you and I think that you very well succeeded to somehow reframe all of those very popular saying, get out of your comfort zone so that you can grow, right? <laughs> hustle, you have to hustle. Oh, um, by the way, when I hear that, I also get a little bit triggered because what does it mean? Go and have, sh what should I sacrifice? My health? Never. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> My relationships? Never. You, you know what I mean? It's like too much of exposure to something without giving details. What exactly does it mean? And we are somehow used to, to listen to those things, right? Hustling, getting out of your comfort zone. So I get it. But how about discipline? Because you can be disciplined in your comfort zone as well. Probably. When it comes to developing habits or, or, or disciplines, a lot of times, and I'm not saying I'm right about this. This is simply where I'm coming from right now in this. It often is coming from a place of restricting something or sacrificing something. So I'm, I'm needing to be disciplined so I don't do this or um, I stick to this thing. Is that making sense? Yes, but isn't it like I have to do it even if I don't feel today 100% yeah. doing that? It's not yeah. more about sacrificing maybe, but it's more about like, I, you know, I'm persistent. I'll do it my, my uh, workout for example if I if I leave it to when I want to work out it will not be so consistent I don't say it I will deprive myself but it will not be so consistent it will not be five mm -hmm. days per week yep yeah I get that so I co-founded a personal trainer school in Sweden where I taught personal trainers to use uh, lifestyle coaching as a tool to create sustainable change and part of that, that's actually where the inside the comfort zone idea was born, you could say, um, because I truly believe that we can make sustainable change uh, from within our comfort zone. Because if you look at it like this, for change to be successful, two things play the biggest role. Do you want to change? Are you able to change? And again, I think wanting and being able are always key. So whenever we're doing something we actually don't want, where's your motivation levels? I even talk about that. Motivation you only need for stuff you don't want to do. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right? That's the only time it becomes an issue. So going back to kind of your example, and it always it, it kind of connects with what you said of having to or must or should. So I often say there are no musts or shoulds. Nothing you can say will convince me otherwise. Do you agree with that? When I tell that to an audience or a people of, you know, in a room full of people, some will say, yeah, yeah, and others will like, no, but there are some musts. 
And, and you know, I, I get that. However, the way that I look at this, so for example, the typical example I often share because it's a real example. So I did this at the personal trainer school and I said, there are no musts. And one woman stood up and said, well, you have to take care of your kids. And I said, no, you don't. And the whole room went ballistic. Of course, you have to take care of your kids or you're an animal. And I said, well, well, hear me out. <laughs> I, I'm saying you don't have to. Like you, you, you could neglect them. I know many cases where kids have been neglected. So clearly it's not that you have to. And, and then I asked this woman and I said, well, tell me, what would happen if you didn't take care of your kids? And she said, well, they'd starve and die. Oh, 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 I get it. What you're saying is you don't want your kids to starve and die, so you're choosing to take care of them. Y yes, kind of. Yeah, but it is like that, right? So in a way, you've already realized it's not a must. It is a choice. The choice is you don't want them to die, so you're choosing to cook or, or clean or take care of them. Just understanding that, reframing that can it's instantly up-level your motivation. Then you don't need discipline because now you actually realize it's not discipline. It's what I want for myself. Yeah. 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 I love it. I mean, I love your uh, reframing of the things, which gives softness to the things, right? And giving softness make it easier to perform. I love that. I love it. <laughs> okay, so let's let's now talk about proc procrastination. Why does procrastination appear in people's way of uh, of achieving their their goals or of having and living the life they would like to have? Mm. Well, according to some studies, and I, I truly believe that they're onto something here, procrastination happens when we're feeling overwhelmed. And overwhelmed is, I think, part of us having lacking clarity, for example. Uh, it seems overwhelming, the thing I'm wanting to achieve. It can also connect to what I shared earlier when I said uh, successful change happens because you want it and you're able to. So even if you want it, but the way there is complicated, overwhelming, then I'd say you want it, but you're not able to, or at least you don't believe you are, that can lead to procrastination. Procrastination isn't a bad thing. It's a protective uh, mechanism. Another thing that pro uh, procrastination connects with is distraction, is that we um, deliberately distract ourselves, consciously, subconsciously. And the studies around that are quite clear as well. We distract ourselves as a way to escape discomfort, which is why, again, I think if we are comfortable, we seek less distractions. We then procrastinate less and voila, <laughs> we're back where we started. <laughs> and is there a difference between uh, procrastination and laziness? Yes. What a lovely question. Oh, God, I get so excited about this. Okay. so. The biggest reason, big, biggest difference is this. Laziness is a label. That is just a judgment. That's the big thing. Procrastination is an actual thing. Like you can, you can see this thing didn't get done, that it has been procrastinated on. Laziness is just an evaluation. And so there is a big difference. I think 
nobody's ever lazy. Nobody. There is always a good reason for what you're doing. In behavioral economics, you always say every behavior serves a purpose. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so now I want to, to have imagined that I would like to start my own business. I'm not sharing right now what exactly. Maybe I want to become a singer, let's say. <laughs> and it's like so funny on this podcast. I always say singing. Singers, maybe <laughs> I really want to become a singer. Yeah. <laughs> My unconscious is talking instead of me. What steps should I take right now? And as you have already heard, I'm not saying, I'm not mentioning an industry, anything. What are the general steps? Yeah. Practice always practice again uh, if you want to be good at something that matters to you you want to spend time doing it what will move the needle the most is how much you're actually practicing your profession practicing your craft uh, that's what's allowing you to master it that's what often leads to feeling confident which then puts you out there and and you get to do more and more and more practice is the key to to this Yeah. Maybe not not a sexy answer, but, but it really is. But then you can say, yeah, but how do you do that? Well, again, I, I think inside the comfort zone, taking the first step, such a small step, you can't fail. That is often one great way to get started. You build momentum. Because as I said before, and this is actually a whole framework that I, that I have, but if you move today, if you take one small step today, you're basically showing yourself that you can do it. If you can do it, you tend to want to do it. When you want to do it, you do it, and then you can some more, and the ball gets ro <laughs> rolling, okay. right? That is practice. And a lot of times, getting started is the hardest step, we often say. Well, I say, make it easy then. Make that an easy step. Start anywhere. Practice something. Especially if it's feeling safe. Brilliant. Just start there. Because it yeah. feeds into the next and the next and the next. Without the practice, it's very hard to get to the place where you can call yourself a singer. Love it. Or anything else. So true. <laughs> <laughs> <All right>. <laughs> <laughs> and Adam, there are a lot of people, and especially I think it's very typical also for high achievers to, to feel the so-called imposter syndrome. So what is the resolution in those cases? I think that Imposter syndrome, at least from my understanding, and I'm definitely not the expert at this, it is almost like self-doubt. We're doubting ourselves. So everybody around us seems to believe in us or seems to think I'm qualified. It's just I don't think I'm qualified. And so to me, it has a lot to do with self-doubt. And if that is the case, then I think there's a bit more work we can do in and with ourselves. I don't think it's about other people. I think it's about us. And I think it's, it's about integrity, knowing oneself and having presence. So I think it's about, uh, I think, and I often talk about this as, as the internal compass. We want to understand our own values, what we value, what we prioritize. And when we act with integrity, with those values, From my experience, it doesn't matter if it's right or wrong as long as you can live with it. And that is kind of how I navigate. Like, 
I might make a mistake, but making a mistake acting from a value is easier to handle than making a mistake breaking one of my values, dishonoring one of my values because I listened to someone else, because I thought that's what people expected me to do. So I think when we know ourselves from our values and we act from that, even though it doesn't turn out the exact way we expected it, at least we can live with that. And I think we have less um, imposter syndrome that way. That's what I can add to that. Have it. Why, why do you think so many people experience burnout nowadays? It's like a popular word, right? Burnout. So why, why is that? Yeah, right. So the way that I look at that is I take this from a model called Jerks and Dodson's Law, and it explains how performance correlates with a level of stress. So it's, and it, may, it might be something you can uh, add in the show notes or whatever to the Jerks and Dodson's Law. Um, but basically they say you need a, a certain level of stress in order to even be engaged in an activity. Because if you don't have a, a sense of urgency, which is another way of uh, translating the stress, you don't care. You're just like, nah. I, you know, if, if, you're, if you're playing a soccer game and, um, and you have no stress around that, you're like, nah. you kick the ball and you do this and you don't care. You turn your back, you go home, whatever it might be. So with a little bit of stress, you're kind of engaged in the activity. So they are drawing a parallel to your performance increases to a certain degree with a, a, a certain amount of stress. And this is probably how our systems, like physiologi physiologically, we are uh, actually motivated to, to move and, and, and do things. The, the model also shows us that with prolonged stress or overwhelming stress, you know, intensity, volume, uh, uh, length uh, of time, the performance starts to slide down. So if we are being stressed out for too long or adding too much pressure, the performance actually starts to decrease. And I think that's what we're seeing more and more. We've just gone through too much pressure. And I think part of that is we're ignoring before burnout. And I've, I've had my own experience with burnout in my career before I started my own coaching business. I ignored so many signals before burnout. Burnout, I think, was my body's response to say, I need to save you now because clearly you're not getting the message. I'm going to shut you down. You're not going to get out of bed. So if I would have listened more, I would have caught that way before it became a burnout. Mm -hmm. And that's how I look at it. Uh, what I often say, and this is based on my own experience, is if and when we experience a burnout, first of all, I think we often need to decrease the pressure so that we can come back. And again, with the Jerks and Dodson's law, we see decreasing the pressure. We kind of climb back up on the performance curve, which is where we want to be. We want to be able to act. And also, don't be surprised if you're feeling slightly more sensitive to pressure next time. Because I used to do that. Like I used to judge myself and criticize myself like you used to be able to handle anything why are you so sensitive why can't you just push yourself and and i reframed that and realized hmm maybe this is the way my system was supposed to work all along i just didn't get the signals before i ignored them and i burnt out maybe my sensitivity is just my system in tune 
with what's actually going on. So don't feel too weak or like, oh, I used to be able to. No, don't, don't. It's not healthy. Mm -mm. It's not normal to push yourself to burnout, I don't think. <laughs> So mm -hmm. listen to that signal. Do not be embarrassed if you have a sensitivity to stress. Adam, you have been a top-level leader at an international multi-billion company, not going to mention names. So was that the reason, like the burnout, that uh, that brought you to the place where you decided to take another path? Mm. Not, not entirely, no. I mean, I was the reason for my own burnout. For sure, because I was a high-achieving uh, overperformer, and part of that was I needed validation from others. So once I started understanding that, I could reprogram myself and realize I didn't need other people's approval in order to feel worthy. And so that kind of uh, got disconnected. I did burn out because I over, uh, you know, overperformed all the time. Actually, my burnout, having experienced that. I was ready to give up, uh, and I had a brilliant uh, manager, leader, uh, who was responsible for me. And she, she sat me down and she told me, Adam, I need someone in your position. If that's not you, that is fine. I will support you. I will help you. However, I still need someone in your position. If that's not you, you need to say that to me now so that I can find your replacement and I will handle you. I will support you. If it is you, I need you 100% at work and you get to decide. And I felt so disappointed. I felt so betrayed. Like I, I thought she was on my side. I did this for her. I, 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 I performed this, this way because of, you know, whatever, whatever. However, I did come to my senses and I said, no, I'm, I'll, I'll do it. I'll, I, I'm, I'm going to come back. For two months straight, I had... A, a, an absolutely blinding headache walking through the the halls of of my workspace uh, office and i just crept along the sides of the walls hoping i didn't run into people because i just couldn't manage conversations and people that that was the level of my burnout okay. my manager though she stayed with me every single day she kept me she talked to me she she helped me deconstruct my work day my tasks she was so hands on in supporting me coming back and thanks to her support, and, and, and she knew this, she herself had burnt out before. So she understood what I was going through. She guided me, she supported me, and I came back that much stronger. After that experience, it only took me about three or six more months. Then I became the youngest uh, senior level manager at that company in history. So I went from being burnt out, basically giving up, to becoming uh, recruited for uh, a top-level management position. I was being considered to become a country manager for our uh, business, our company, which means I would be the director of, of a, a country. And all of that came from my learning to, to use my, 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 my performance levels, my desire, my drives, everything in a much more sustainable way. So I think the burnout can definitely be a learning opportunity. I did, however, quit when given the opportunity to join this program to become, be groomed to be a country manager. And I realized 
if I say yes to this, I'll have more of what I already have. And I wasn't happy as it was. So I was kind of like, I don't see how more of the same is going to make a difference. I think it's a good time to leave. That's what I told myself. And so I did. So I spent about nine years, almost 10 years to build my career that way, only to between a Monday and a Wednesday, two days, deciding to leave. Two weeks later, I had left and blown up my entire career and identity with it uh, because I used to be quite a high-achieving person there. So, yeah. And why coaching? How did you decide to, beca to become a coach? Yes. Yeah. So I didn't know that that was an actual thing you could do as, as a, you know, ways of supporting yourself. I did, though, in my time at my, my position uh, with this company, I was able to work with external consultants. And one of them, he was a somewhat big uh, name in Sweden as a coach, consultant. Mm -hmm. And I spent a lot of time with him. And he was the person who kind of showed me that this is an actual profession. I was like, wow, that's interesting. So when I did leave my company, I took a year off uh, and I just traveled. And I, I, was, I was kind of considering, what can I do now? What should I kind of take as, as a next step? And I realized three things I enjoyed. I loved working with people. I love uh, creating change. And I really did love coaching. So coaching it was a tool that my company used as a leadership uh, tool. So I was taught coaching early on in my career. So mm -hmm. I thought, well, maybe I can combine that into a job. And then I started my business. And yes, nine years later, here we are. So I love it. I love it. I'm so happy that you found your way and your passion. Obviously, it's so obvious. But Adam, there are so many people that they're doing something they don't like or they don't fully like just because they they haven't found their pa passion. They don't yep. know what they really like. Yep. So what should those people do? Mm. Not should. Let's not use should. But no, exactly. What can those people do in order to find their passion? Right. So if you don't know what your passion is, that's absolutely okay. So first of all, you get to play with that. You get to experiment. I'll, I'll use a bit of a, a story by a guy called Simon Sinek. He's the guy that you can see around YouTube talking about the golden circle of always starting with a why and, and stuff like that. Simon Sinek is a, is a very famous guy. So he once held a talk on this and he said something, I think, absolutely brilliant. So he said... Stress is an output. Passion is an output. It means it's an outcome. So what's the input? So the way he explained it was when, when you do something you don't like, you have stress. You, when, you, when you're having to do something you don't care about, what you often experience is stress. Now, you can define stress however you want, but you feel pressure. When you do something you're, you care about that is meaningful to you, what it looks like is passion. You can't do your passion. You simply do what you care about. Mm -hmm. So it, a, an example of that is you can have two people working at the same, uh, same job, and, and the job requires late nights, uh, weekends, 
travel, away from family, tough, tough job. You ask one person, do you like it? Is it worth it? And she goes, absolutely. I love it. It's the best job in the world. You ask the other person, he goes, no, I hate it. Next best opportunity I get, I'm out of here. How is that possible? Two people having the same kind of position, same circumstances. One is loving it, the other one isn't. It, it's, de it's depending on, I think, the question, is it worth it, question mark? Is it worth it to you? Are you doing something that makes sense to you? So if you're looking for passion, stop looking for passion. Look for things that are meaningful to you, things that you care about. And then if you don't care about your job, Again, going back to the guy who introduced me to coaching, his name is Christer Olsson, for anyone who's Swedish and want to look him up. Um, he used to say, fall back in love with your job. Because if you start caring about the thing you do, and you can gamify it, you can, you can set up small, small challenges and try to get better at certain things, like what if I sold 10 ketchups today, or if I got people to do this or take that way, whatever you do. But as soon as you start caring, it starts to look very much like passion. It starts to look very much like you're enjoying it. Yeah. Yeah. I'll, maybe I'll leave it with that. But I love it. And when you achieve that small thing, then you feel better about all of that. And maybe yep. it will become a circle, right? How would you define success? What is success for you? Oh, brilliant. Might sound somewhat cliche. I'd say success is to what degree I have been myself, been true to myself. And that's it. That's success. Like, it's not going to be status or money or this or that. It, it, it's not. To me, it is simply that. To what degree have I been true to myself? And that is to know myself. And it is to have integrity and to act from that place, to listen to that voice of mine. Um, that is success. And that means sometimes walking away from the money, which I did leaving my corporate job. I, I walked away from money and stability to, to do what I'm doing now. And I, 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 sometimes I've been thinking about writing a book calling, you know, how I went from, uh, you know, uh, like 5 million uh, a year to, to 5,000 a year. Because it's literally how the first year was. Like that was that was really challenging. So I went from making a whole lot of money to making absolutely nothing. And and I would the subtitle would be a success story. Right? Because it's like that is actually what it is. Me making less money ended up being the best thing I could do. But I'm not suggesting that as a recipe, by the way. Do not <laughs> do not set out to make less money than you're making today to be happy. That's not the way. The way is be true to yourself. That just happened to be my way. Get, yeah. Let me. And when you, I, when I, you said true to yourself, you yeah. you mentioned being like um, having integrity, being authentic, being yourself. What else? Values. Being in contact with your values, leading with your values. What matters to you? There's um, I know that the time is what it is. So you you stop me if you need to. Um. There's a really cool uh, theory called the four burner theory. And it's four burners because it's the, it's the gas stove burners, right? So it says that we've got these four burners in our lives. Everybody got them according to this theory. The four burners represent four very big, important areas of your life. One is health. Another one is free time, work and family or relationships. 
Okay, those are your four burners. The theory says if you want to be successful, you need to turn off one of the burners um, to advance the other three. But if you want to be really successful, you have to turn off two burners for the other two. The question is, what burners or which burners are you turning off? And so when I first heard that, I was like, it makes sense because it's very much what I did to build my career at, at my corporate background. Like I, I sacrificed two, at least two burners to achieve the career success I had. So I was like, it makes sense. But bloody hell, I'm a life coach. I can't accept the fact that you're going to have to sacrifice two out of four important stuff in your life. It just doesn't make sense. It took me about three days to come up with what I felt was off with this idea. And it is as simple as this. Define success. Because the theory says you want to be successful, turn off one. You want to be really successful, turn off two. Define success before you start assuming that we are defining success the same way. Can we just define it? And that's yeah. the thing I'm inviting people to do. Define your own success. If your success is to live with one of those burners turned off, brilliant. Go ahead. If it's not, then just define it in your way. Yeah. I love it. I love it. And Adam, in the beginning of that inter of this interview, I mentioned that I would like to to have a little bit of talk with you about about your role as a change change agent. So very quickly, as we are really running out of time, our brains love the familiar, right? They will keep you in the familiar hell than in the unfamiliar heaven. And they want to save energy, so change is a lot of energy. So keep they keep us from change as well, just because their purpose is to keep us the safe life, right? Not to be to keep us ha happy. So how how can we embark the journey uh, uh, of change? How can we start loving the change mm. when it's needed? It's not always mm. needed when it's really needed. Yeah, so I, I think in many ways I've talked about this when I said that successful change happens because you want it and you're able to do it. And so I think um, change, which is a cliche, but it but it but it's a constant. Everything changes. That 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 really is the case. Everything all the time. Nothing really stays the same. So I think change is all around us, um, and that is good news as well because if you don't like how things are now there's change coming like you you can literally make that happen i often call myself a change expert because i i break it down to this simple thing of wanting change and being able to change then then i get to talk about that how do we want change and how do we make it possible to change and i think it's that like if 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 you don't want to change right now that's fine you I, i'm the first one to tell you you don't have to um there's a saying by the the collective uh, Abram Hicks, which is a, a channeled collective from a woman called um, Esther Hicks, um, they have a saying where they say, don't worry, it will get worse. <laughs> and I kind of love that because I'm like, sometimes that's what I tell myself. Sometimes that's what I remind myself when I'm talking to someone like, don't worry, it will get worse. Because it's saying that if now is not the right time, that's fine. Because one thing I think is important to understand as I said, for successful change to happen, you need to want it. Otherwise, it's very temporary. 
Otherwise, it requires willpower, discipline, routines, etc., etc. When those routines are being hard to show up for, when your priorities change, when circumstances change, all of a sudden that thing goes out the window. That is not a sustainable approach to changing. That is a very temporary one. But when you want it, you will make sure it happens. And so that's why I like, don't worry, it will happen. I want you to want it because that is the factor that will help you change. Is that making sense? It's making sense. And how about if people don't want it, but it's needed? The, it has two sides because you have uh, organizations, you have uh, jobs, and then you have just personal stuff. Like if, if your partner thinks you need to change, well, that's his opinion that it's not true if if your employer yeah you go let me give you an example let's say that some someone is in a pretty kind of abusive relationship but at the same mm -hmm. time this person let's say is dependent on the other person because of financially they have children for example i'm just throwing something out mm. so change is needed but it's mm. like uh, maybe it's also wanted but it's difficult. Yeah, that I that I agree with. So if that is the case, the the first thing is maybe don't rely on the other person to change. Look at where you can change. All right. So if if it's true what you said, change is wanted. Like I I, I want things to change here. Yeah. Don't put it on the other person to change because that is outside of your control. Look at what you can do. If you can, remove yourself. If you can't, talk to someone. Like, th those are the steps. Now, in codependent relationships, the other person might not always want to change, like want to break free, and that is a trickier thing. All we can do then, I think, we can do interventions. We can do stuff like that. At the very bottom of things, we can uh, physically remove a person. We can. I'm not going to say that's the way to do it, but we could. Um, I still think an element of wanting that change is important for a sustained change, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. But it but it really comes down to that. Like, don't look for someone else to change. I, I think that, I can't remember who said that, but there's a quote that says, uh, you know, everybody talks about change. Nobody's, you know, talking about changing yourself, something like that. Like, we're so quick at wanting everybody else to change, but we're not actually looking at ourselves. And I'm not saying that in a judgmental way. I'm saying that in an empowering way, that that's where your zone of control lies or locus of control. You can, you can change. <laughs> I yeah. love it. And now just one last question to wrap up your business model and your perspective about life. I, I love all of those things that you have mentioned. And at the same time, money is still something we need, right? <laughs> we definitely need money to survive, especially if you have also kids. Let me let me think how to smoothly <laughs> form, define my question. So does your way of building your business really allow you at the same time to be calm that money is not the problem? I absolutely think so for several reasons. I, one of them being that 
before social media, before, yeah, let's just say before social media, but even before marketing, marketing is a relatively new thing. I mean, it's kind of been, was invented in 1950s or something like that. We've been doing business for thousands of years. And we didn't do that with social media or, or, or even marketing, billboards and stuff like that. So we can create business and income outside of marketing and social media. We can do that by building relationships. That has been done for centuries. Now, one of the things that I, one of the principles in making money, I think, is this. As long as you can make a big enough difference in someone's life or business, there is a way for you to support yourself. What I mean by that is, if you work at McDonald's and you're not making a big enough difference for McDonald's, they're not going to keep you. Right? So I'm, what I'm saying is, even if you're employed, if your employment isn't making a big enough difference for your employer, they're not going to keep you. They'll replace you because you're not moving the needle for them. If you're running your own business, if you're not making a big enough difference in someone's life or business, they're not going to pay you. So in my world, if I ever need money, I look for where I'm making a difference. How much of a difference am I making? The cool thing about that is I can control that. I can control my focus on making a difference. And when that difference is valued enough, I can then kind of request money and I can make sure I'm getting paid for that uh, difference I'm making. So when we become really good at what we do, the difference often is, is much, much higher as well. If, we're, well. if our craft is mediocre, if I'm not super good at what I do or not even good enough, on a scale from 1 to 10, 10 being a master, 0 being a, a, an absolute new beginner, if I'm only a 3, then chances are it's going to be harder to make a bigger difference. So when I excel at my job, and I do that because I'm spending time doing it, practicing it, I can make a bigger and bigger and bigger difference. And with a bigger difference, I can also charge differently. Is that... An answer to your question? Yeah, it is. Okay, so now, <laughs> as really on the end of this episode, um, Adam, I usually do the following. I start the sentence and I want you to finish the sentence quickly without thinking, you know, let your unconscious, like with my singing too, <laughs> spread around. <laughs> Let's do that, okay? Absolutely. See? Okay. The biggest change that I did in my life and I really love is? Uh, love relationships. Love and relationships? Do you say that? Yeah, my love relationships, my romantic my, relationships. My journey in, co in coaching people showed me that? People are not broken. Every human being desire Building business is about? Making a difference. Marketing for me is? Unnecessary. <laughs> <laughs> if, I, if I could change one thing in the world, it would be? Remove suffering. I really believe in? Love. In love? Yeah. Yeah, I believe in love. 
Thank you so much, Adam. It was amazing conversation. You brought so much value. I love your different perspective and your mind. Thank you so much for participating. I really appreciate your time. Thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed this. Thank you.